You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 Lectures, entitled The Mission of Folk Souls, translated by Joanna Collis. This is Lecture 8, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 14, 1910. If we wish to study the development of Germanic Nordic history and the spiritual impulses it depicts, we must first of all bear the fundamental character of Germanic mythology in mind. As I said in the last lecture, despite its many points of similarity with other mythologies and conceptions of divinity, it is nevertheless entirely unique. Among the Germanic peoples and tribes of Europe, there was a large measure of agreement in their fundamental mythological conceptions, so that even in regions far to the south, it is possible to detect a uniformity of mythological conception arising from the interrelatedness of those peoples. At one time there must have been identical understanding of the unique character of that Germanic Nordic mythology in one form or another in all the regions where it existed. The common features in that mythology are very different from the essential characteristics of Greek, let alone Egyptian mythology. In Germanic mythology, everything is interrelated and differs widely from the substance of Greco-Roman mythology. It is not easy to detect the essence of this because on account of certain intellectual assumptions that are outside the scope of this lecture, there is a general tendency nowadays, almost a longing, to see similarities in the religions of different peoples. There is much enthusiasm today for comparative religious or mythological studies, but it is a field in which the greatest nonsense can flourish. What happens as a rule when the mythologies and religions of various peoples are compared with one another? The superficial aspects of stories about the gods are compared and attempts are made to demonstrate that the figure of a particular god who appears in one mythology is also found in a like manner in another mythology, and so on. To anyone who knows the real facts, this comparative study of religions shows a most disquieting trend, because it is everywhere the practice to compare only external features. To someone who knows the facts, the comparative study of religions is like declaring, quote, Thirty years ago I met someone who was wearing a uniform of blue trousers, a red coat, and some kind of headgear, and so on. And then, continuing, Twenty years ago I met someone wearing the same uniform, and ten years ago someone else also wearing the same uniform. If one were to believe that because the people one met thirty, twenty, and ten years ago all wore the same uniform, they could therefore be compared with each other in respect to their essential character, then one would be making a great mistake. For a totally different person could be wearing that uniform on those different occasions. And the essential thing is to know what sort of person is concealed behind the uniform. This parallel may seem far-fetched, 
yet in the sphere of comparative religious studies, it is the same as taking Adonis and comparing him with Christ. All this does is to compare the external uniform. The apparel and characteristics of the beings in the various legends may be very similar, but the point is to know the nature of the divine spiritual beings concealed within them. If completely different beings are present in Adonis and Christ, then we are merely comparing externals and the parallel has only superficial value. Nevertheless, this comparative method is extremely popular nowadays. But the results arrived at in the comparative study of religions, with its purely external approach, are often not of the least consequence. The point is rather that an understanding of the specific differences of the folk spirits should teach us how a particular people arrived at its mythology or other teachings about the gods, or even how it arrived at its philosophy. Thus we cannot easily come to understand the fundamental character of Germanic Nordic mythology unless we review once again the five successive ages of civilization in the post-Atlantean period. These five cultural ages were brought about by migrations from west to east, so that at the end of these migrations the most mature, the most advanced human beings had pushed forward into the regions of India where they founded the sacred, ancient Indian civilization. The next cultural age nearer to our own was the Persian, which was followed by the Egypto-Chaldean Babylonian, then by the Greco-Roman civilization, and finally by our own. The essential nature of these five cultures can only be understood if one realizes that in past ages the human beings who participated in them and also the angels, the folk spirits or archangels, and the time spirits, were all quite different from one another. Today we shall look more closely at the way in which the human beings who participated in those cultures differed from one another. The human beings who founded the ancient Indian culture, which then received its literary expression in the Vedas and subsequent Indian literature, were totally different from the Greco-Roman peoples. They differed indeed from the Persian peoples, the Egypto-Chaldean peoples, and, most of all, from those which were being prepared in Europe for the fifth post-Atlantean civilization. In what respect did they differ? The entire human makeup of members of the ancient Indian peoples was completely different from that of the inhabitants of all the regions lying further to the west. To describe the difference more explicitly, we must say, the peoples of ancient India had reached a high stage of evolution before they took the I, capital, into themselves. In all other aspects of human evolution, they had made immensely great strides. Behind them lay a very long period of development, but they had lived through it in a kind of dim consciousness. Then the I entered in they awoke to the consciousness of the I. Amongst the Indian people this came comparatively late, at a time when they were already very mature, when they had already undergone what the Germanic Nordic peoples would still have to undergo after having already gained possession of the I. Please be very clear about this. The Germanic Nordic peoples had to experience with their fully developed I 
what the inhabitants of ancient India had passed through in a dim state of awareness, without having first developed their eye consciousness. Now, what was it that happened in terms of human development during the post-Atlantean period? In the time of ancient Atlantis, human beings were still endowed with a high degree of the old, dim clairvoyance with which they could look into the divine spiritual world and see the hidden workings of that world. Imagine yourselves for a moment in the ancient land of Atlantis before the eastward migrations had begun. The air was still thick with water and mist, and souls were also different. Human beings could not even distinguish between the perceptions of the various senses. They found the spiritual content of the world spread out around them like a spiritual aroma, a spiritual aura. It was a certain kind of clairvoyance from which they had to free themselves. This was brought about by the operation of the forces to whose influence they became subject as they traveled from west to east. They underwent many different stages of soul development in the course of those migrations. There were peoples who, during their migration eastward, at first slept through, as it were, the period of emergence from the old clairvoyance and had already reached a higher stage of development when their eye was still in a dim state of consciousness. They went through various stages of development while their eye was still in a dull, dreamlike condition. The Indians were the furthest evolved when their eye awoke to full self-consciousness. They were so far advanced that they possessed a rich inner soul life, which no longer showed any traces of that elementary stage in soul development, which still persisted for a long period of time in the peoples of Europe. The Indians had already undergone that elementary stage a long time before. They awoke to self-awareness, when they were already endowed with spiritual powers and spiritual capacities that enabled them to penetrate deeply into the spiritual worlds. Hence all the activity and positive influence of the various angels and archangels on the human souls had become a matter of complete indifference to the more advanced members of the Indian people in their efforts to emerge from their old twilight conditions of clairvoyance. They had not directly observed the work of the archangels and angels and all the beings who were active, particularly in the folk spirit. All the work of these higher beings upon their souls, upon their astral and etheric bodies, had been accomplished at a time when they themselves were, so to speak, not yet fully present. They awoke when their souls had already reached a very high stage of development. After only a brief further development, the most advanced among them were able to rediscover in the Akashic Chronicle all that had taken place earlier in the evolution of humanity, so that they looked out into their spiritual environment, into the cosmos, and could read in the Akashic Chronicle what was taking place in the spiritual world and what they had undergone in a dim twilight state of consciousness. They had been guided unconsciously into higher spheres. Before their eye consciousness had awakened, they had acquired spiritual capacities that were far richer than the soul capacities of the Western peoples. 
For those Indian human beings, the spiritual world was a subject of direct observation. The most advanced among those who guided the Indian people had risen to such high spiritual levels that at the time when their eye awoke, they were no longer dependent on it in order to observe how human development sprang forth, so to speak, from the spirits of form or powers. They were more intimately associated with the beings we call spirits of motion or mites, and above these the spirits of wisdom. These were of the greatest interest to them. The spiritual beings of lower rank, on the other hand, beings whose domain they had already shared in former times, were no longer of particular importance to them. Thus they looked up to what they later called the sum total of the spirits of motion and of the spirits of wisdom, to what was later characterized by the Greek terms dunamis and curiotities. They beheld these beings and called them mula prakriti, the sum total of the spirits of motion, and maha parusha, the sum total of the spirits of wisdom, that which lives as if in a spiritual unity. They could attain to this vision because those who belonged to that people became conscious of their eye at such a late stage of development. They had already dealt with things which later peoples had to experience with their eye. The peoples belonging to the ancient Persian civilization were less highly developed. Their own specific cognitive capacity and the fact that their eye awoke at a lower stage of their development meant that they looked to the powers or spirits of form. They became especially familiar with these. They could understand them to some extent and were particularly interested in them. The peoples belonging to the Persian communities awoke to eye consciousness at one stage lower than the Indians, a stage which the peoples of the West were still working toward. The Persians were conversant with the powers or spirits of form, known collectively as the Amshaspans. These are the emanations we know of as the spirits of form or powers, and the peoples of the Persian culture were especially familiar with them. Next we come to the Chaldean peoples. They were aware of the primal beginnings, the leading time spirits. They had an awareness of the beings whom we call the primal beginnings, the spirits of personality. The peoples of the Greco-Roman age also had some awareness of those primal beginnings or spirits of personality, but in a different form. In their case, there was an additional factor that may help to clarify our understanding. The Greeks were closer to the Germanic peoples, but they became aware of the I at a higher stage than the Germanic Nordic peoples. The work of the angels and archangels in the human soul that the northern peoples experienced had not been directly experienced by the Greco-Roman peoples, although they still retained a vivid memory of it. Thus the difference between the Germanic and the Greco-Roman peoples is that the Greco-Roman peoples still retained a memory of how the angels and archangels had participated in the development of their soul life. They had not been much aware when this was going on, for they had still been in a state of diminished consciousness. But as a memory, they recalled that experience quite distinctly. 
the creation of this whole world, the working of the angels and archangels, both abnormal and the normal, in the human soul, was known to the Greeks. They preserved in their souls vivid memory pictures of what they had experienced. Memory is much clearer, takes on sharper outlines than the immediate experiences of the present moment. What appears to us as memory is no longer so fresh, no longer so youthful, but it has sharper contours, sharper outlines. The Greeks had a memory picture in bold, clear outlines of the influence or positive activity of the angels and archangels upon the human soul. This is Greek mythology. If we do not approach Greek mythology in this way, if we simply compare Greek names with other names in the various mythologies, if we do not take into account the influence of special forces, nor understand the significance of the figures that appear as Apollo or Minerva and so on, then we indulge in a superficial study of comparative religion. We compare one uniform with another uniform. What we should be looking at is the manner or mode of perception in those times. Once we have grasped this, we shall be able to see that Greek mythology was formed from memories. The Egyptian Chaldean age had only a dim recollection of the activity of the angels and archangels, but was able to perceive the world of the primal beginnings. It was a time when something began to be forgotten. And in Persian mythology, the world of angels and archangels had been forgotten entirely, while at the same time the world of the powers or spirits of form remained perceptible. What may be found in Greek mythology had been forgotten by the Persians and totally forgotten by the Indians. The latter turned to the Akashic Chronicle to see the entire sequence of earlier ages and created pictures of earlier events out of their knowledge, which was indeed a divine knowledge that they owed to their more highly developed spiritual powers. This also helps to explain the great difficulty that the peoples of the East experience in understanding the spiritual life of the West and the superior attitude they adopt in relation to the spiritual life of the West. They are prepared to accept the civilization of the West, but the spiritual culture of the West, unless they come to it indirectly through spiritual science, remains more or less closed to them. They had already reached a high stage of human evolution at a time when Christ Jesus had not yet descended to the earth. He did not come until the fourth post-Atlantean cultural age. This is an event that could no longer be grasped with the forces that had developed through the Indian people. In order to comprehend the coming of Christ, one needed faculties belonging to a less lofty station of the eye, a dwelling of the eye in more humble forces of the human soul. In the Germanic Nordic regions, the working of the angels and archangels in the human soul was no mere memory. The affairs of the angels and archangels and the way in which they worked in the soul were something that human beings could still be involved in, even at the time when Christ Jesus walked the earth. The Greco-Roman peoples, on the other hand, 
upon undergoing these inner experiences of the soul, remembered something they had gone through in earlier times. But the Germanic peoples lived in those experiences in that they felt them to be their very own direct affair. Their eye had awoken at this stage they had reached when the folk spirits and those spirits who were subordinate to the folk spirits were at work in their soul. Hence these peoples were closest to the events we know of as having taken place in ancient Atlantis. In ancient Atlantis, human beings beheld the spiritual powers and spoke of a kind of unity of the Godhead because they were seeing a direct perception of faraway, primeval states of human evolution. At that time, they were still seeing the working of the spirits of wisdom and the working of the spirits of motion, which was something the Indians of later times were able to observe again in the Akashic Chronicle. The peoples of the West had raised themselves one stage above that level of perception so that they experienced directly the transition from the old perception to the new. They perceived the active weaving of real spiritual powers at a time when the eye was not yet awake. But at the same time, they saw the gradual awakening of the eye and the penetration of the human soul by the angels and archangels. They watched this direct transition. They had a memory of an earlier weaving life when everything was seen dimly through a sea of mist. And they saw rising out of that sea of mist the divine spiritual figures whom we have learned to recognize as the spiritual beings ranking immediately above the human being. The old gods, however, who had been active before the gods now seemed to be active in the human soul, had become familiar. Those old divine beings, who had been active in the far, far distant past in ancient Atlantis, those were the gods whom they named the Vanir. Having stepped away from the time of ancient Atlantis, human beings then saw the weaving of the angels and archangels, whom they called the Aesir. Readers aside, Aesir, I'm pronouncing it that way, is spelled A-E-S-I-R. Vanir, from before, is spelled V-A-N-I-R. End of readers aside. These were the beings who, as angels and archangels, were concerned with the human eye that then awoke at that lowest level. They were placed in charge of those peoples. What the other peoples, the peoples of the East, had slept through, namely the perception of how the soul, the inner life, was gradually developed by means of the various forces bestowed upon it by the normal and abnormal angels and archangels, this had to be experienced by the peoples of Europe beginning from the lowest stage. They had to be fully present in their awareness in order that these soul forces could gradually develop. Thus Germanic, Nordic human beings saw the figures of the gods, the divine beings, working directly upon the soul. They had direct perception of the human soul wrestling its way out of the cosmos. This was their direct experience. They did not recall, in retrospect, how the souls worked their way into the bodies, for they saw it all as an immediate and present happening, 
It was their own development, and they were fully present there with their eye. Even until the 8th, ninth, and 10th centuries after Christ, they retained this feeling, this understanding of how the forces of the soul are gradually formed and crystallized into the body. In the first place, they saw the archangelic beings who worked in their soul and endowed them with what was to become their soul forces, and the greatest of these archangels was Wotan or Odin. They saw him at work upon their souls, and they saw how he worked into their souls. How did they perceive Wotan or Odin? Who or what was he? In what form did they learn to love Odin, and above all to understand him? They learned to recognize him as one of those archangels who in the past had decided to renounce their development to higher stages. They came to know Odin as one of the abnormal archangels, as one of the great figures of renunciation in ancient times, who had assumed the office of archangel through taking upon themselves the important task of working into the souls of human beings. Germanic, Nordic human beings experienced the activity of Odin at the time when he was still in the process of giving the gift of language to the incarnating human soul. The way in which Odin himself worked upon his peoples in order to make language possible for them has been remembered in a wonderful way. It was described as an initiation of the god. The way in which Odin gained the power to endow the Germanic Nordic peoples with language is described as follows. Before having attained this power, he underwent what is depicted as an initiation through the divine draft, the draft that in primordial ages was possessed by the giants. This draft contained not merely an abstract kind of wisdom. It represents for us the wisdom that lives directly in the spoken sounds of language. Through his initiation, Odin won power over that wisdom which lives in the sounds of language. He learned how to make use of it when he underwent a long initiation lasting nine days and from which he was finally released by Mimir, the ancient bearer of that wisdom. Thus Odin became the lord of the power of language. This is why the later saga traces the language of the bards or skalds back to Odin. Runic lore, which in ancient times was thought to be much more closely related to language than to later literature and letters, was also traced back to Odin. Therefore the manner in which the soul, indirectly through the etheric body and interpenetrating the physical body, acquired the power of language through the appropriate archangel is expressed in the wonderful stories told about Odin. Similar archangel beings are to be found among the companions of Odin, Hynir, who gave the power of thinking, and Lodur, who gave something that is intimately connected with race, namely pigmentation of the skin and blood characteristics. In these two beings, therefore, we have archangels who are more in the normal line. In Vili and Ve, on the other hand, we have archangels of abnormal development, they are beings who work more in the inner life, in the 
hidden recesses of the soul, as I pointed out in the last lecture. An I that is itself at an abnormal stage of development, where it is present even when the subordinate forces of the human soul are being cultivated, feels itself to be intimately related to an abnormal archangel. Odin, therefore, is not seen as an abnormal archangel, but rather as a kind of archangel whose remaining behind is akin to that of the Western souls, who experience more consciously in their eye that which remain behind during the migrations through those regions, whereas the Eastern souls pass beyond certain stages of their soul development before deciding to awaken. Hence there lives especially in the soul of the Germanic Nordic peoples all that is associated with the archangel forces of Odin, which stir in the elemental depths of human soul life. We have said that the angels are responsible for transmitting to the individual human beings what the archangels bring about. Hence an I that awakens at such an elementary level of soul life is especially interested in having the activities of the archangels carried into it, so to speak. Thus the Germanic Nordic human being has an interest in an angel figure who is endowed with special power, but who at the same time is closely related to the single human being and his individuality, and that being is Thor. We can only recognize Thor when we see in him a being who could have risen to a far higher rank had he followed the normal course of evolution, but who renounced advancement comparatively early and remained at the angel stage in order that at the time when the human eye awoke in the course of its soul development, he could become the guiding spirit in the soul world of the Germanic Nordic regions. What gives the immediate feeling that Thor is related to the individual human eye is the fact that what was to be transmitted to every individual eye from the spiritual world could in fact be transmitted. If we bear this in mind, we shall also understand more clearly the fragmentary information that has come down to us. It is important to have a right understanding of these individual gods. Germanic Nordic human beings perceived and experienced the imprinting of the soul into the body. They were present when the I was integrated into the body and took possession of every individual human being. We know that the I pulsates in the blood of the physical body and that everything in it has its counterpart outside, that everything in the microcosm has its parallel in the macrocosm. The work of Odin, who gave language and the runic wisdom, who worked through the breathing in a very indirect way, has its counterpart in the movement of the wind in the macrocosm. The regular inhalation of the air through our respiratory organs, which transform the air into words and language, corresponds to the movements and currents of the wind in the macrocosm outside. Just as we feel within ourselves the power of Odin in the transformation of the air into words, so too must we perceive his wielding and weaving in the wind. Those who still possess the old Germanic Nordic abilities, 
one of which was especially a certain degree of clairvoyance, did indeed see this. They saw the presence of Odin everywhere in the cosmic element of the air, saw how he formed language by means of his breath. Nordic human beings perceived this as one and the same thing, just as that which lives in us and organizes our language, that is to say, in the form in which language existed amongst the Nordic peoples, just as it penetrates into the eye and sets the blood pulsating, so too does the inner organization of language in the human being find its parallel in the macrocosm in lightning and thunder. Language is there before the eye is born. Hence the eye is everywhere felt to be the son of that being to whom language is owed. It is especially Thor who plays an active part in the implanting of the individual eye, and the pulsation of the blood in the microcosm corresponds to the macrocosmic process. Thus what, in the macrocosm, corresponds to the pulsation of the blood in the human being, is the lightning and thunder that moves through the whirling winds and the weaving clouds. The Germanic Nordic human being sees this clairvoyantly as a oneness. He perceives the whirling of the wind and the flashing lightning as intimately related to the air he inhales. He sees the air he inhales passing into the bloodstream and setting the eye pulsating. Today this is looked upon as a physical process, but to Germanic Nordic human beings it was an astral process. They saw the intimate kinship of fire, of lightning, with what pulsates through the blood. They felt the pulse beat in their blood and knew it to be the pulse beat of the eye. They were aware of that inner pulsation and knew that after a while it would recur. But they paid no heed to the external physical process. All this was seen clairvoyantly. They felt that it was the deed of Thor that caused the pulse to beat and made the blood return again and again to the same source. They felt the Thor force in their eye as the hammer of Thor returning ever and again into his hand. They felt the power of one of the mightiest angels who had ever been honored or revered because he was a mighty being who was seen to have remained behind at the angel stage. The way in which the spiritual force holds the physical body together is expressed in Germanic Nordic mythology through the fact that it is the eye that holds the soul bodily being together during its formation. Germanic Nordic human beings saw the weaving of body and soul from within, and even in later times they still understood how, originating in the astral element, the inner life becomes integrated, how, so to speak, the inner gives answer to the outer. They could still respond when they learned from the initiates how the cosmos molds itself into the human being. They were able to look back to earlier stages, to what had been told them about the events that reflected the relationship between the angels and the archangels to those earlier stages when the human being was born out of the macrocosm in physical-spiritual form. They were able to perceive how the individual is built up out of the macrocosm and how he is an integral part of it. 
they sought in the macrocosm for those occurrences which take place in the microcosm in such a way that human thoughts are woven from the northern region of the human being, from the cool realm of the spirit, and that it is from that region whence the human physical aspect receives the twelve cerebral nerves of the head. They saw the process that has microcosmically become the twelve nerves of the brain. They saw the weaving spirit in what they called Nebelheim or Niflheim. They saw the twelve streams that converge to form physically the twelve cerebral nerves in the human being. They saw how the forces coming down from above are met by what comes from the heart, from the southern region of the human being. They searched for it out in the macrocosm and understood when they were told that it was called Muspelheim, Thus, even in the Christian era, it was still possible for them to comprehend the microcosm in terms of the whole cosmos. And one could go back further still in showing how for them the human being gradually originated out of the macrocosm as an extract of the whole world. They were able to look back into that time and they could understand that these events have a long history which they themselves still saw as a working of the angels and archangels into their soul. They realized that these events have a long history, and the conceptions they thus acquired are what we encounter in the old Germanic Nordic creation story of the coming into being of humanity out of the whole macrocosm. The myths begin with Genungagap, the primeval chaos of Germanic Nordic mythology. This is approximately the point at which the earth is recreated after having passed through the three earlier incarnations of old Saturn, old Sun, and old Moon, where it re-emerges from its prolia with the kingdoms of nature not as yet differentiated and with human beings who are still entirely spiritual. It was then clear to the Nordic human beings how the later conditions emerged. It is interesting to see how the events of those times are portrayed in Nordic-Germanic mythology in the form of imaginative pictures, events that we in our spiritual scientific teachings describe in more sophisticated terms, using concepts in place of the earlier pictures. The events described took place when sun and moon were still united. We are told how the moon departed and how later developments led to what subsequently became known as Riesenheim or Jotunheim, home of the giants. Everything is described that had existed in Atlantean times, that had arisen out of those earlier times and was a matter of concern to the Germanic Nordic people. Today I only wanted to give an idea of how the Nordic eye awoke when the peoples were still at a more elementary stage of development and how the Nordic human being perceived the folk soul, the soul of Thor, and so on. I wanted to show how the eye was present and was able to respond with direct interest to the interweaving of higher beings, who, however, came from a realm entirely different from that of the beings we find connected with the Eastern peoples. Tomorrow we will endeavor to explore the lesser-known parts of Germanic mythology, we will discover how these lesser-known parts are harbingers of something that dwells in the folk souls, and we will gain insight 
into the nature of these Western folk souls. The end of lecture 8.